And as you're turning there, I'll uh, make you aware of just a few things going on here at the church. So you can find out these things uh, on the back of uh, your bulletin. You can also find them out on our website, tccraleigh.org. But just a few things that I would love to uh, point out to you as we seek to gather to love Jesus more and to love this church and to love our city and to the ends of the earth. So there's a few things that are going on. You'll see them on the back here. One is that we have a Loving the City Fellowship coming up. We do this a couple times a year where we just seek to get to know our neighbors better and eat together. So we will be uh, having a, a feast together here on these grounds on April the 10th. And so we invite you to come out completely free from 4 to 8. We need some volunteers because we're also going to do some kids games and uh, some other things uh, like that. We'll be doing a baptism uh, on our property here. And so we're just really looking forward to that time. Put it on your calendar and that will be uh, Loving the City Fellowship April the 10th. Also, uh, you'll see on there that there's a men's spring camp out coming out. You'll see a table in the foyer that, where you can sign up for that. Um, uh, we've noticed that uh, dudes are not really excited about sending emails back, uh, so maybe signing up on the table out front would uh, serve you. So feel free to check your calendars and go out there and sign up. Evites have not always worked for you guys, so um, we're going to uh, we're going to have a sign up out there if you are interested in uh, joining us for the men's spring camp out April the twenty second through the twenty fourth. As I said, other things you can find on our website or on the back of the bulletin. But today we get the privilege of continuing in a series that we started way back in uh, January, entitled "Unveiled." Unveiled the self disclosure of Jesus from John 13 to the end of the book. John is the fourth gospel. Gospels are the summary of the good news of Jesus' life. And this is the account recorded by John. We believe that this Bible is the Word of God, comes to us. And so we are getting God's words to us and His account uh, through the Apostle John of these last days. So Jesus has been revealing Himself to His followers leading up to his death, warning them that his death was coming, foretelling that his death and resurrection were coming, but now it's being played out in shocking display in kind of 3D for them. So last week we began to see Jesus put on trial. On Friday evening of this week we began to meditate and think on Jesus' death, and now today we're going to be uh, seeing Jesus as resurrected. So I would like to read for us in John 19, and I'll read verses 19 through 37, but we will go through the sermon, it will go all the way through verse 9 of chapter 20, okay? So John 19, we'll start at 28 and go through 37. Now the Bible says this, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, 
They will look upon him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask, we ask that in these moments that your word would come alive to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move because these aren't just normal words. These are alive words. And we ask that you would move in such a way that we have more than good feelings, but that something unique is stirred in our hearts to cause us to love Jesus more. And so, God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that aren't hard. Give us minds that aren't confused but are engaged. And would you do a great work of hope in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so why do we have the concept of rooting for the underdog. I hear it all the time. I do it myself. When I see when the odds are stacked against someone, unless it's my team, you know, and then I really don't care about other teams. But why is it that there is this kind of propulsion forward to root for that underdog team? To see someone succeed. Now, when I think of these NCAA basketball times, I think about how my bracket is a joke and how I was doing so well until Michigan State lost. Um, you know, that was round one. So, you know, I've seen better days when it comes to my bracket. And yet, those who weren't rooting for Michigan State, they saw this underdog, Middle Tennessee State, come in, out of nowhere and win. And we do that. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Rudy. It's an old school movie. I'm kind of dating myself here, but Rudy is the classic underdog story. You know, the guy who doesn't have the talent but loves the team, shows up on the team, and by the end, he's shown to, have, to get into the game and to have this amazing play. So this is Rudy, and we root for the underdog. We don't just do it in sports, though. We love it when the person who has failed multiple times all of a sudden succeeds. We love it when the paraplegic or the one who has some disability begins to overcome that disability and we stand astonished at their strength. We love it when someone diagnosed with cancer fights that battle and they find themselves in remission and their bodies are moving forward. We love these stories. Why? I would argue that it's more than just showing the power of man that we love. It's more than just showing the power of medicine. It's that there's an underlying craving hardwired in the human heart that I need hope that trial can be overcome. I need hope that out of my deficiency, all is not lost. I need hope that out of my pain, all is not throwaway. And when it comes to the major crisis of life, and that is death, I need hope that there's something beyond the grave. I need hope. And in the few minutes that we have today, the author of this book, John, the God of the universe through him, wants to communicate the resurrection screams to us all, there is hope. There is hope. And so what we want to see here is three things that make it crystal clear as to why the resurrection is important. Why is the resurrection important? How does it give us hope? And these are the three things. Number one, we can have hope because the resurrection tells us that God keeps his word. God keeps his word. God's not a liar. He keeps his word. Number two, the resurrection is important because it tells us that Jesus is confirmed as our only hope. The resurrection kind of puts a stamp on Jesus that says, 
It is through him where hope is found. And then the last one is, the resurrection is important because it shows that out of death comes life. Out of death comes life. So let's just look at the Bible. Let it kind of guide us through. But let's look at this first idea that the resurrection is important because it shows us that God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Now, the passage that I just read for you is leading up to what we are talking about today is the resurrection. But what we want to see are several things that kind of stand out to us in this passage. It is an account given by John, but also I want to make sure that this is said on the front end. This is an account testified by many eyewitnesses. And these accounts, namely the Bible, the scriptures we have, they are given to us while those eyewitnesses are still alive. If you're going to make up a story, you don't want to do it while the people who could discredit your story are still sticking around. You want to make sure that story kind of can be hidden or kind of go so that it cannot be discredited. Well, these words that we have, arguing these are God's words, these words come to us not just as John's good ideas. They come to us with witnesses all around that could say, liar. And yet, not only do they not say liar, but they say, I believe this and I'm giving my life for this Christ. Many of them died for this message that we are looking at today. And so as we read it, we want to try to process what Jesus says about this word and what this word says about itself. Namely, this is God's word and every word of God's proves true. So as we read it now, we see this. Even Jesus' death was seeking to confirm this fact. Verse 28 After Jesus knowing that all was now finished, and we'll talk about this finished word as it comes up again, I want to just point out this next phrase. Was finished, he said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And then what you begin to hear, several things that I meant, several verses that I read, you hear that phrase over and again, right? You see it in verse 28, to fulfill the scripture. You see it later on in verses 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were broken. And another scripture says they will look upon him who was pierced. So in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled, several things had to happen. Actually, over 60 things had to happen in one man in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled. The first here was found in verse 24. In this account, it says, So they said to another, Let us not tear the tunic, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture. So he had outer garments. Those were taken off, and those were kind of divided among them. But this one garment was one solid piece. It was a tunic. And so rather than ripping it apart and dividing it among people for the fabric itself, they said, let's keep this as a whole and we'll cast lots. What is remarkable is these soldiers who are thinking they are mocking Jesus, they are ignorantly fulfilling God's plan. They're doing what God had said hundreds, if not thousands of years before would happen, and they're carrying it out. God's word is being fulfilled. Then when he says, I thirst, it says that he will be given sour wine to drink. The the coming Messiah will be given this sour wine to drink in Psalm 69. And so in order to fulfill scripture, he says, I thirst. Now then what's remarkable, you might be able to say, well, he can kind of manipulate the circumstances while he's still alive. What's remarkable is Scripture continues to be fulfilled even after he's dead. So we see that after he has died, they go through to break the legs of the other people who were being killed in order that asphyxiation would happen. And he would 
they would die that way, and that they would die quicker. But what happened is Jesus had already died, so no bones were broken, fulfilling another scripture. And then they take and they pierce his side, fulfilling yet another scripture. While Jesus was dead. How do you get someone to do these very things after you've died? If they were not fulfilled, he would not be the Messiah. Our faith would be a sham. God's word would not be true. We would have very little to put our hope in. Maybe only ourselves. But what is remarkable is even Jesus' enemies are unknowingly participating in God's plan of redemption. From the trial to the betrayal, to the crucifixion. The banner over all of this is remarkably clear. God is in control. As Pastor Travis said last week, he rules rebellions. He supervises surprises. Our God is in control. And he can be trusted. This is the major point that John wants to get across is that God is on his throne, his word is true, and he can be trusted. And this is why he says in verse 35, if you still have your Bibles open, I encourage you to keep that because we'll be reading some other verses. But look at verse 35. It says, he who saw it has borne witness. Who's he speaking of? John's speaking of himself. That I saw this with my own eyes. And I bear witness That Jesus' testimony is true. My testimony is true. I know I'm telling the truth. And why is he telling the truth? Why is he communicating this? He says right here, I'm communicating this so that you also may believe. That you may believe. Like I believe. I've seen it with my eyes. I'm writing it down so that you may also believe that every word of God proves true. And you want to know one other thing that fulfilled the Scripture. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one more evidence that God keeps His Word. The Scripture we read while we were singing these songs said, this happened just as He had foretold. And so the resurrection confirms that God is who He says He is. And now we have a credibility issue. We have a credibility issue. Because no longer can Jesus just be generally good. This is the old C.S. Lewis adage. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. You can't have it, you can't have it he's just a good guy. He's either lying, and this word cannot be trusted. He's either crazy, and then you can't call him a good man or a good prophet. Or he is a Lord that we must submit our entire lives to credibility it's not enough to say that there are multiple ways and there are general gods that this is just one potential option jesus does not leave that as an option he says i am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to god except through me he with his mouth makes things exclusive and says hope is found in me So credibility stands on the resurrection. And if he is alive, then we must credibly deal with this information. So number one, God's word proves true. His death and his resurrection confirm that his word is true. And number two, it confirms that Jesus is that final word. Jesus is the only hope. And he is confirmed as that only hope. Now, I'm going to have some verses put on the screen behind us. It's um, a book in the Bible called Hebrews, found towards the end of the New Testament. And this talks about what is said about Jesus. So what we're arguing is God's Word is true, and everything that's said in God's Word is true, so it's binding upon our lives, and we must submit to that. And now let's see what God's Word says about Jesus Himself. 
And Hebrews 1 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So there's a contrast. There's a difference in his speaking through the prophets and his speaking through his son Jesus. This is why, and the reason I bring it up, is this is why the author John begins his whole book with, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's calling Jesus the Word. Why is that? Because God's Word came to us through the prophets before, but now uniquely God's word has come to us in his son. The embodiment of all of his promises, all of his character, all of his goodness has shown up to us in a person, Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews says, but in these last days, the last days are marked by the resurrection forward, the coming of Jesus forward. whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. And now it says Jesus is the radiance. I love that word. Just the beauty, the brilliance, the shining brighter than anything else you can think about shining. Jesus is the radiance of the glory, the greatness, the magnitude, the beauty of God. He is that shining out, and he is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is God of very God. Jesus is God himself, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The exact imprint. It means that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of his character. That's another way to talk about that word, exact representation or exact imprint. Jesus is that character, that exact expression of God himself. You know what that means? If Jesus is character and not just a force, if Jesus is a relation is is a person and he is the exact kind of personage that comes to re- relate to us. That's what it means. He's a person that wants a relationship with you and I. I was listening to a sermon this week by Tim Keller and Tim Keller did an amazing job of talking about what is necessary in a relationship. I remember when I first got married, I had very different dreams of what marriage would be. When I got married, I thought, first of all, oh, those things that kind of bother me a little bit about my wife, I'll be able to fix those. And that the problems she has with me, eventually she'll see that, you know, they're not that bad. <laughs> and that anything that we might disagree about before marriage, it, it's not that big of a deal. It won't, it won't grow bigger. Once, once we can be together in the same home, that's just, it's just going to be ironed out. And the first year of marriage was a train wreck. It was horrible in so many ways because it was hard. It was hard. What in the world was I thinking to jump into a relationship where somebody would not always agree with me? Oh, wait. That's relationship in general. Tim Keller was talking about a movie where someone was just as frustrated about their relationships as I was with mine initially, and so they tried to solve it by putting computer chips in their spouse. And so now, woman, you just do what I tell you. And so they had this computer chip, and all of a sudden, they're just cleaning, agreeing, doing what was told. What do they have? They have a robot, but they don't have a relationship. A relationship is not where someone does everything that you tell them to do. That's not a relationship. You're a dictator. A relationship 
is when someone crosses your will and you're better for it. You learn to be patient. You learn how to not insist on your own way. You begin to see that you're a little fragile of soul and you're not always right. You begin to see somebody else has some really good ideas. You begin to relate to one another. And the Word of God says that Jesus Christ is not just any word. There were words of God given to the prophets beforehand, but now the Son of God is the final word given to us. So, I talk to so many unbelievers, so many people who are still trying to figure things out, and I'm I want to be with you on the journey. We've got to be really patient. We've got to ask a lot of questions. God is not scared of your questions. But when you say, I don't believe the Bible to be true because I don't like what it says about this or that, we must be careful that we're not taking a computer chip and putting it in our God to where he does what we say. That's no God at all. You're a dictator. Your God. What we need is a relationship. And Jesus Christ is the final word. The final word of God to us. And he fulfilled all scripture and every word of his proves true. And what we have right now is an invitation into a relationship with his son. A relationship where we listen where we dialogue, where we share our hurts, and where he delights to be with us. But you better believe that if he's the God of the universe, then there's going to be something that contradicts our soul. And so with the resurrection comes what this passage says, God has spoken to us by his Son in these last days. And Jesus is the confirmation that God's word is true. Because he is that final word. And so now jump back with me to the book of John. And with Jesus' final words, we hear him say this. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What did it mean? What did it mean for the final word to give his final words? What did it mean for God's word to us, the person of Jesus Christ, to speak with his dying breath, it is finished? It meant, what is finished? Jesus had perfectly obeyed the Father even to the point of death. I was perfect when you couldn't be, Jesus says. It's finished. What does it mean to say it is finished? What was finished? The just wrath of God that we deserve was finally poured out upon Jesus so that anyone who would trust in him would not have the disposition of God as one who pours out wrath, but would have the disposition of God as one who loves like a father loves a child. It's finished. That was finished on the cross. Justice has been served for sin. It's finished. And it is finished. What was finished? The weight of our guilt and shame. When it says in the Bible that Jesus stood in the place of sinners, he died the death that they deserved, what does that mean? It means that all of our guilt and shame and sin was placed upon him. He was treated like a sinner, although he was perfectly obedient. I personally hate feeling guilty. It is a miserable feeling. It feels like a weight of 10,000 elephants on my shoulder that I cannot shake off. It is a burden too heavy for me to carry. And Jesus says, in that moment, not just the weight of one person's sin, but the weight of the sin of humanity placed upon his shoulders for me and for you. And he says, that guilt, shame-bearing, it's finished. 
That's what was finished. It is finished. What was finished? The suffering that was required to save sinners. The debt has been paid. It is finished. And what is finished? The perfect, indisputable declaration of, I love you, and you're valuable to me, was finished on the cross. I love you, and I love you to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's finished. That's what was finished. And the final word gave his final word with his dying breath, and he says, it is enough. It is enough. And now, John is pleading with us as the listener, he is pleading with us as the reader to believe that Jesus is that final word. And so, in John chapter 20, he tells us that we're very thankful Jesus did not stay in the tomb. We're very thankful he didn't stay in the tomb. Look at chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now what John doesn't include here is the background, how the stone was rolled away. It says in Matthew, earthquake comes, stone rolls away, and the angel sits down. (laughs) It's like, done, it's moved. And so now Mary, when she had saw that, Verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples. And it says, the one whom Jesus loved. That's how John talked about himself without saying, hey, me. And he said to them, she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Now this verse, in the midst of a resurrection story, always makes me smile. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. It's like John saying, just saying, I'm quicker, okay? (laughs) Just saying, I got there first, okay? And Peter and John reached the tomb, and then stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Peter came (laughs) following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths there and the face cloth which which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. How does a linen cloth get folded up behind a sealed tomb? Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw it and he believed. You see the connection? I saw it with my eyes. I want you to believe because when I walked into the tomb, I believed. In verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again. They understood Jesus' words now. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that He died and rose again, but they still needed to be told, which will happen when Jesus rises from the dead and He walks with them for several days, that all of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And those those last words are crucial that the Scripture said he must rise from the dead. What does the resurrection communicate to us? It communicates to us that God keeps his word. It communicates to us that through Jesus alone is the only hope for humanity. It confirms that he is the final word. And what does his resurrection communicate to us? It communicates a massive hope that out of death comes life. I want you to have that hope today, that out of death comes life. You might say, well, it's good and all that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of Scripture. Let's just make sure it lands on us. There's a book in our resource area that we are highlighting today. If you don't have a copy, you can take one as far as I'm concerned. $5 is the charge, but we would love for you to get it. It's called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And in that book, he says the likelihood of fulfilling six prophecies is one in 100 million billion. Literally, those are your odds. And he fulfilled 
not six, but 60. Jesus is the final confirmed word. But even if you say, okay, that's true, what about the fact that I'm still stuck in my pain, in my sickness, the world around me still feels pretty bad? What does it mean for me? How in the world can his resurrection bring me hope now? And this is where we need to be convinced that his resurrection speaks, out of death comes life. Out of death comes life. That's what the resurrection says. Here's what we miss. When sin entered into the world through the, through the transgression of Adam and Eve, they chose their own way over submitting to God's way, and it did not just mess them up, it messed up everything. The whole world is unraveled. And so death is kind of doing the creep thing all over the world. There's a brokenness over the world. We experience it when our bodies are weak. We experience it when tornadoes and hurricanes run. We experience it when there are wars and factions. Death is creeping everywhere. But what the resurrection says is that all hope is not lost because death, out of death comes life. And I just want to walk you through real quickly, just almost in shotgun form, how because of the resurrection, because Jesus is alive, because it was confirmed by over 500 witnesses and those who followed Jesus said that's true and they gave their lives for this. Because he's alive and it's a fact, Everything changes, including our hope that out of death comes life. Look at these things. His life, because he is alive, his life overcomes the death of creation. The Bible says creation is groaning, longing to be repaired. <laughs> we don't see it, but the trees are groaning. And there's some out in the front that look really like they're groaning a lot. They're about to die. I was looking at one in the back parking lot, and it literally goes up like this. And then it curves, and it looks like it's going to turn in on itself. And you're like, I don't think that's going to make it very long. And you just begin to look at, although it's beautiful, you can still see that not everything is thriving in life. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there is a promise that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That even our creation will find a sense of redemption. And what we find as beautiful is still broken. And what we will see on that last day will be restored in such a way that words can't even describe, but breath will be taken away and joy will catapult out of, a, out of our hearts. There's a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. All the brokenness of creation will be restored. Life overcomes the death of creation. Life also overcomes the death at work within our bodies physically. We were laughing, and I had some thoughts, but this one we were laughing actually just before this service about roller coasters. And I just want you to know that when I was young, I could ride many a roller coaster. And I was okay with that. But now that I have gotten older, I can't ride the merry-go-round without getting a little nauseous. I used to be able to do this, and now I can barely do this. What's going on? I'm getting older. Something's going on in the equilibrium world here. My body's not improving. <laughs> it's not improving. And guess what? Where's the hope in that? Because out of the progress of death in my body, there is a promise of life to come. That my body will be restored one day. And it says in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. I've got a perishable body. But on that last day, because Jesus is alive, I will be raised again, and my body will be imperishable. 
His life overcomes the death at work within us physically. His life also overcomes the death at work within us spiritually. What is going on in our hearts is that why are relationships so hard? Why do wars exist? Why do I one moment feel really happy and the next moment feel really sad? It's because in the core of our heart, we are broken. We are broken and in need of a Savior. We are sinners. We insist on our own way. God gives commands and we break them. But hear this. Hear this. Don't let me talking about sin make your ears go and shut off. Because that's why the resurrection is important. Listen to this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.3. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, say it with me, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You don't have to be hopeless. You don't have to say, woe is me, and you don't have to pretend that you're not bad. I'm bad, you're bad, Jesus is good, he redeems that. And through him, we have a not just a future hope, but a right now living hope that he is growing us and changing us and he will never leave us. There's hope. You don't see cancer solved by saying it doesn't exist. You say it exists and you get treatment. The treatment is the final word of Jesus Christ. His life overcomes death at work within us. His life overcomes the, the death of injustice. Have you ever been treated wrongly? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever just felt like someone has gone against you, mistreated you, and you just wonder, is that person ever going to change? Am I going to be able to make it anymore? The resurrection says this. That where injustice exists, justice will be served on the last day. But for you, he promises that because he's overcome the grave, you can have hope, even when being mistreated, that our God has not left you and that he will never give you more than you can handle. He will stay alongside you. He will give you strength and he will help you love when it's hard to love. His, his life overcomes the death of injustice. His life overcomes the death at work in religion. And what I mean by that is religion is not the way to solve the needs of the human heart. A relationship with Jesus is that need. And as we have already talked about, I want to say again, there is only one way to God and peace in Him. It is Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 1.4 says. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. You get that? By the resurrection from the dead, Jesus is the Son of God in power. Every word of His proves true. There is only one way to God the Father. And also His life overcame the death at work through legalism. Legalism is this idea that I must do better in order to get God to approve of me. It crushes so many souls. That's actually what many people think religion is. It is the doing of good deeds in order that you might appease some type of external force or some type of external God. And that is totally in opposition to the Bible. The cross and the resurrection scream, not first, do for me, but look at what I have done for you when you could not do. The resurrection screams there is hope, not in your doing, but in God's doing for you. So that's why John says over and over, when I saw him, I believed. And I tell you these words so that you may believe. Death is overcome in your soul and legalism is put away because you are now convinced that I am not saved by me doing things for God. I am saved by faith alone in Him. 
That's where the relationship begins. And so legalism is crushed. And faith is ignited. And finally, life overcomes death. Life overcomes death. And out of death comes life. One day we will all die. There's just no way around it. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That's why everybody dies. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is why Paul is so passionate in the book of Philippians, and I've got the verses should be behind you here, when he says this, if that's the case, if Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that I couldn't live, he died the death that I deserved, and he's now alive, then it changes everything for me. And he says, this is my main ambition, that I may know him. Hear the relationship? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That means dying to sin and living for him. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. His hope was not ultimately in this world. It was on that last day when he would see Jesus and all wrongs would be made right. His body would be made whole. All injustice would be put away. And the joys of being in the presence of the living God and you being able to say, it was worth it all. It was worth it all. Because you will stand there unashamed because all of God's words have proved true. So do you hear? Out of death comes life. I just want you to be able to look at every aspect of your life and say, although this pain is hard, although there is death around me, although there is sadness in my soul, the resurrection says, I will not be left alone. And there is life coming out of my trial. There is life coming out of my trial. So when injustice runs over your life, yet through it you're made stronger in your faith, and you're given some shocking sense of ability to forgive the one who's done something against you, and it stands in contrast to the bitterness in the world, all of a sudden you're seeing life come out of death. It's when the death of a man in our neighborhood happens, and he was shot and killed. What does it do? It brings an awareness of people wanting justice. It brings churches together to pray more. It brings the attention of people to what it looks like to try to ad be an advocate for the poor. All of a sudden, life is beginning to spring out of death. His death was not in vain. It's when sickness comes to our body, and yet out of that weakness, you begin to appreciate previous strength that you had taken for granted in the past. And when Believers begin to say, although my body is wasting away, I still trust in you. You are beginning to show that life is springing forth out of death. It's when surprises show you that you're not in control anymore. You've been there. And when your sufficiency gets shaky and you begin to look outside of yourself for help, and where you begin to believe that Jesus must fill in the gap and that you begin to trust that his words are true and he is still faithful, all of a sudden, life is coming out of death. And out of a wretched story of abuse or betrayal, he promises that your story is not throwaway. Your story is actually part of his grand narrative of redemption and restoration, and he can redeem you and redeem your pain, and he will use your story as a means of help in someone else's story that life might spring forth out of death. The resurrection communicates that when it's our last day and this life comes to an end, It'll be on that day when people's opinion don't seem that important anymore. And our image will seem to be a little silly. And our favorite sports teams will not be the first thing on our minds. And those things that make us bitter will become strangely secondary because we are looking at what is next. And when on that last day you say, Christ Jesus is my Lord. 
and I love him. Out of death comes life. You'll breathe your last. And for anyone who trusts in Christ, you'll be ushered into an eternity with him that is better than anything you could imagine. Out of death comes life, friends. The resurrection screams it. And that is why our faith hangs on it. Christ is alive, and he is our hope. Let's pray. Father, you are the final word. You are good in everything that you do. And I just pray. I pray that there would be this strange, powerful sense of hope that comes over our souls in these moments. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead important? Because it verifies and stamps that your word is true to us. Although we don't understand everything, although we don't get everything, although we have doubts at times, your word is true. And you are a shield to those who take refuge in you. So Father, may we take you at your word and believe you today. Would you make faith spring forth? Father, we're thankful for the resurrection because it confirms that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he said he is. He is the final word, and with his final word, he brought redemption to humanity. We say thank you that the resurrection proves Christ is our only hope. And right now, as we spend some time of reflection we want to reflect upon those spaces of our soul where we just feel hopeless. And we want to ask you, even if it's maybe the first prayer of faith we've prayed in years, that we would just ask you in this moment, would you bring life out of death in my heart? May there be no corner where I push aside and try to handle it on my own. And Father, would you come right now, I pray, and would you bring life to us all? Faith, hope, eyes to see in the midst of trial, and a confidence that one day you will get your people to the end. So Father, I don't even pretend to know what you're doing, but I do know that you're doing something. And it's upon that hope that I just ask that as we spend this time in prayer that you would move. So I pray this in Christ's name.